0: Welcome to Appalachian Shine, the official podcast for the Foundation for Appalachian Advancement. And if you're listening to this, then consider yourself a part of the team. Stick around and let's shine a light on all things Appalachia. To another episode of Appalachian Shine. Hey, I hope everyone had a great October uh, and enjoyed Halloween. Today's uh, November 6th, and so we're a few days past Halloween, but I hope everyone had a chance to get out, experience the, I guess, the last bit of the change in the leaves as we head into Thanksgiving. Uh, here in central Appalachia, a lot of the leaves have already fallen off. Um, I hope you got a chance to uh, get out and have some fun with uh, friends and family and maybe experience a, an official Appalachian haunt or two. I know there are plenty of those uh, uh, tours going around through central Appalachia, like Tri-Cities, Abingdon, uh, the typical places here in the central part of uh, here in the mountains. So hopefully everyone had a great time and uh, haven't, I don't know, have eaten too much sugar since then. I'm guilty of that, but hey, that's just me. Before we get into this episode, we're going to talk in this episode, actually, a little bit about some just local history that i think sort of falls off the map in a way i mean i know it's uh, the civil war is still such a popular topic in history in our region but in a way it's not really covered um in ways that i think would be probably most pertinent however um i do want to talk a little bit about uh, first of all i want to thank um Recently, we were contacted by uh, A Magazine for the Arts. So I wanted to say specifically thank you to them for reaching out to us because they were going to be highlighting uh, a few Appalachian podcasts. And I suppose with several of the uh, artists that we've had on our show before, writers, painters, musicians, and so on and so forth, that um, I guess that bug was planted in their ear. So I have got an email from them. They reached out to us to talk a little bit about Appalachian Shine. So they highlighted us in the October 30th edition of A Magazine for the Arts. And you can find that online at uh, aamearts.org. Uh, I'll actually, in the notes of this podcast, I'll put up the link. So if you're viewing this online or if you're viewing it on your Apple iPhone or wherever. There'll be a link in there you can click on if you want to read the article. I'd greatly appreciate it if you do. Um, <clears throat> it was uh, they, they did a really flattering job for us. So a shout out to them and a thank you for highlighting our show and uh, the foundation and just giving us a chance to talk about our mission. Uh, we, we certainly do greatly appreciate that and we appreciate every one of you that are tuning in listening to us today. Um, but uh, for you know one of the things I like to do is uh every morning i always look up on history.com what happened on this day in history and i really wish there was some sort of a book or a go-to place where you could find what happened on this day in appalachian history but unfortunately I, i don't i've never found anything like that but i did find something i thought that was quite interesting uh going back to like november of 1950 the Great Appalachian Storm of November 1950. Does, has anyone heard of this? So I was kind of relatively new to this, but apparently uh, this kind of impacted a lot more than Appalachia, but it's referred to as the Great Appalachian Storm of November. It was a large uh, extratropical cyclone that moved through the eastern part of the U.S., and it caused blizzard condition, conditions along the western slopes of the Appalachians and really heavy rainfall and winds on the east side of the mountains i always found it fascinating how the west side and the east side of the appalachian mountain range can get some very different weather um so in wintertime that's one reason why i try to pay very close attention to the weather because here in the central part of appalachia and southwestern virginia you just you really never know what you're going to get <laughs> so anyway back in uh, november of 1950 these hurricane force winds, I've said it peaked at 110 miles an hour in Concord, New Hampshire, and then 160 miles an hour as far north as New England, the Highlands there. It knocked out power to over 1 million uh, customers during that, that time. The storm in all impacted, according to what I read, 22 states. It killed 383 people and injured over 160. And back then, it in today's dollars, it would have been a little over eight hundred eleven million dollars in damage. So, um, yeah, that cyclone was one of only, from what I read, one of only twenty six storms to rank as a Category Five on the regional snowfall index, and that's uh, that's quite uh, that's quite brutal. The maximum snowfall or ice uh, accretion was t- uh, 57 inches. And and back in that day the dollars it was 66.7 million dollars of damage in 1950. Um but wow. I think it roared in during November 24th and 25th and continued on to the 27th. Uh there's coastal flooding um from New Jersey all the way northward. And during that time, Alabama set record lows for November at uh, 5 degrees Fahrenheit. Mobile was at 22. Jacksonville was at 23 degrees. And within Georgia, even over, in, over into the Appalachian region of Georgia, they said all-time record lows for November were set at 3 degrees in Atlanta, Columbus 10 degrees, uh, Savannah, which is coastal, 15 degrees, uh, all-time record low was set in Kentucky uh, for November and Louisville at negative one. That's, that's just kind of crazy. <laughs> um, West Virginia, Parkersburg recorded 34.4 inches of snowfall, um, which they said at the time, which exceeds its snowiest November on record by over five inches. Uh, Pickens, West Virginia reported the highest amount from anywhere within the cyclone with 57 inches. Uh, And in November 1950 was uh, West Virginia's snowiest month on record. So you talk about a really lasting impact. Um, That's just crazy. (laughs) That's crazy to read about that in November, that kind of brutal weather. But yeah, the, uh, the, the great storm of november 1950 appalachian storm one of the things um i'm going to jump into this real quick with the uh, civil war and i'll be brief on this particular episode because i want to give you a little bit of homework and this is some homework i'm going to take upon myself too because there i run across several books i think that are very much worth reading and after looking into it i I think i'm going to have to place a book order (laughs) um if you're like me you wear amazon out but that's that's what i've been doing um no matter where we turn at here in Appalachia, it seems like we can run into a place where there was some sort of Civil War drama, whether it be a battle or debates or um, you know, just uh, strongholds that people needed. And one of the local towns from where I'm at, even though all of our counties have had some impact uh, from the Civil War, whether it's uh, uh, direct battles or, or, or places of importance, one of the most important places in the Civil War was Saltville, Virginia, and uh, if, if for those of you who maybe have not been to Saltville, if you're driving on Interstate 81 around the Bristol, Abingdon area, just keep going. You're going to run into Saltville. Saltville is actually in Smith County, and um, this was a particular battle. the The first battle of Saltville was kind of what I was reading about, and it just kind of kind of struck me as quite interesting. These these battles, the these need to. We need to have separate little books or pamphlets of learning for these things for local students, and I, I don't think we really have available much anymore. Um, the First Battle of Saltville uh, occurred on October 2nd of 1864, and, was, and it was fought near the town of Saltville um, during the Civil War. Uh, the battle over a significant Confederate salt works in town was fought by both Regular and, I guess, Home Guard Confederate units is what they called them. And they fought against U.S., you know, regular U.S. Army troops, uh, which included, in the first Battle of Saltville, they fought against um, two of the uh, Black Cavalry units of the United States uh, Colored Troops. This was, I think, is what that's the official name of, the United States Colored Troops. Those That was a Union Army regiment during the American Civil War that uh mostly comprised of uh, african americans uh with soldiers from other ethnic groups too uh it was you know i guess it was established in you know, great demand um for that but during this particular battle there were two of those uh black cavalry union uh units that fought against uh the uh the troops there at saltville U.S. Army uh, Brigadier General Stephen G. Burbridge. He was the commander of the U.S. forces uh, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, but he led the U.S. Army troops into softball. And I may have mentioned this on a previous podcast because um, I've talked a little bit about some of the battles in eastern Kentucky, uh, uh, Battle of Ivy Mountain. Then there's a Civil War battle site uh, near... Paintsville, uh, um, Kentucky. And so that, that's quite interesting there. It's it's between Pikeville and Paintsville. Uh, Prestonsburg, I think, is probably the exact location of it, right around through there. But anyway, if you haven't had a chance to see that memorial, definitely swing by. It's just down the road from the Mountain Arts Center uh, near uh, Pikeville and Prestonsburg. But anyway, Stephen G. Burbridge, uh, then commander of the U.S. forces in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, led the U.S. Army troops. Confederates actually murdered both black and white wounded soldiers after the battle, which uh, went on to be called the Saltville Massacre. And uh, some of you that are Civil War buffs may have you know, heard of this or may, may be well aware of this. But for those of you that aren't, uh, the Saltville Massacre, the, the battle was a Confederate victory. So it became known primarily for the Confederate massacre afterwards of white and black wounded U.S. Army troops. Uh, Both Confederate soldiers and irregular uh, guerrilla forces under the uh, command of Champ Ferguson murdered uh, white and black U.S. Army soldiers on the battlefield and later some wounded who were being treated at the uh, field hospital set up nearby at Emory and Henry College, of all places. Uh, a U.S. Army surgeon reported that five to seven black soldiers and uh, Elsa Smith, a white lieutenant, were murdered at the hospital. So uh, Confederate Brigadier General uh, Felix Houston Robertson ended up bragging to another officer that he had killed nearly all of the, the black soldiers. And uh, so William Davis, in, uh, in this book called An Honorable Defeat, The Last Days of the Confederate Government, uh, said that Robertson personally joined in the act of villainy, although he escaped prosecution. Uh, when General Robert E. Lee learned of Robertson's conduct, he communicated to General John C. Breckinridge, which was the commander of uh, the Department of East Tennessee and West Virginia. Uh, he he uh, told him of his dismay about that, that the general officer should have been guilty of the crime you mentioned, and instructed Breckinridge to prefer charges against him, and bring him to trial. uh, Which was the right thing to do. Uh, Estimates of the number of men massacred at Saltville will uh, vary depending on the sources that you read. But Thomas Mays, in this book called The Saltville Massacre, uh, which was written, I think, in the mid-90s, argued that 46 U.S. Army soldiers were killed. Uh, An analysis of the National Archives records by I think it was David Brown, uh, concluded that 45 to 50 members of the 5th and 6th U.S. Colored Cavalry were murdered by Confederates. Uh, William Marvel had earlier analyzed the same records and concluded in 1991 that five black soldiers, wounded and helpless, were definitely murdered at Saltville on October 3rd, and as many as seven more may have suffered the same fate there that day the Confederates may have murdered as many as two dozen U.S. Army. Uh, Felix Houston Robertson was never tried for his role in that massacre. Uh, he died on April 20th, 1928, at the age of 89. However, Champ Ferguson did stand trial immediately after the war. He was tried in a military court in Nashville uh, for that and other non-military killings, actually. He was found guilty of 22 murders and sentenced to death by hanging. He was executed at the Tennessee State Prison on October 29th, 1865. They didn't take long for him to face justice. Uh, I'll not get into this one, but the Second Battle of Saltville took place two months later at Saltville. That was in December of uh, 20, 20th and December 20th and 21st of. 16 1864 and um after the defeat there in the second one uh, general berber's expedition against of uh, the union general uh george stoneman uh reassembled a force to destroy the salt works there um but it's you know it's it's really interesting if you go back there um There's a Civil War trust, I guess, that was set up, a division of the American Battlefield Trust, and its uh, partners, they've acquired and preserved 107 acres of the Saltville battlefields. Uh, So there's a historic district uh, that you can uh, go check out there in Saltville. It's on the U.S. National Register of Historic Places. So if you get an opportunity and you're on the interstate and you want to see some you know, just step on the ground of some sacred history in our nation uh stop in saltville virginia such a cute small town too if you're on the interstate i can just tell you when you exit off in chill uh there's a road that'll point you right back to saltville you're like 15 10 15 miles away from saltville um there's a nice little overlook where you can stop and have a drink take some pictures so uh definitely do that check out the museum there um like I said, quaint little town of, you know, growing up, I had family that lived over there. So I went over to Saltville many times and, um, such, such history and so many of these small towns throughout all of Appalachia. And, uh, the, you know, the history of this stuff needs to be preserved and taught. So I don't know how many students out there, young people may be listening that knew about, you know, the Saltville massacre, but if you're listening now, you do. Hopefully you're curious and hopefully you'll keep looking for some other information. Now, I'd actually, one thing I wanted to do on this particular episode was uh, give a little homework out. For those of you who are interested uh, in this, um, I wanted to kind of bring up something really interesting. Uh, I had read about this earlier today. You know, it seems like when we talk about the Civil War, you know, there's, well, let me kind of back up. This this was something that was brought to my attention many years ago when I was living in Cincinnati, and uh, my boss actually was um, one of those people who took place, or who, who took part in all the uh, uh, reenactments. So he was a, a, a Union soldier, and he would actually go down every year and do take part in the reenactment of the the Battle of Perryville, which was fought in Kentucky um, in 1862. Now, I learned something really interesting at the time. There was a phrase that was shown, that was kind of thrown around, I guess by some, and it was picked up later on in a book. Um, I don't know if he picked the same phrase up from what I heard, but, you know, during that battle, participants experienced an unusual phenomenon. Um, that I learned about back in this might have been 2003. They this phenomenon known as uh, they called it the acoustic shadow. So apparently, as it was explained to me, this it's a combination of uh, wind and terrain that muffled the sounds of the fighting in such a way that like soldiers that were close by, they were unaware that a battle was even taking place. Well, you know, if then I started reading a little bit more about this and about this one particular book. And as the editors of this collection of essays, I'm going to bring up here in a second, observed that a a figurative acoustic shadow has long fallen on the study of the Civil War in Appalachia. And I've noticed that, like, when you look for you know books on civil war in appalachia there's a lot that's missing in the reading i think um just as a you know fan of history and trying to learn things and a lot of this of these people that wrote these essays said the reason that there's that acoustic shadow over the study of civil war in appalachia is because of regional stereotypes Uh, a lot of generalizations and the overall neglect of geographic context and that has often replaced detailed analysis and innovative interpretation so that's what they sought to uncover and a lot of recent history that's been written presents a fuller view of the war as it unfolded in the mountain counties and not just here in you have know, Virginia, Kentucky, West Virginia, Tennessee area, but also in Alabama and Georgia, Maryland especially, uh, the Carolinas. Um, you know, so there, there's a lot of things that happened in the Civil War, and I guess a lot of, when you think about it, and I think these essays pro- probably bring this out a little bit, which is why I'm interested in reading this this particular book. Can you imagine living during those times and then, One minute your town is occupied by Union forces, and then the next you're occupied by Confederate forces, and then you know local guerrilla warfare people. You know, your loyalties sometimes on the outside maybe change. Your opinions on the war change based on what you see from what side, and um, and, you know one of the great examples of that is you know the uh, area of what we call Gatlinburg and Cades Cove. There's an amazing Civil War history there about those that were in favor of slavery and those that weren't. And when when you talk about neighbor against neighbor and that particular issue, yeah, it was it really was neighbor against neighbor and father against son and you know it's brother against brother. It, it really you can you can see that sort of come alive in some things that you read. Now, this particular book is called The Civil War in Appalachia, a collected, a collected essays by Kenneth No and Shannon Wilson. So that is something that was put out by the Tennessee press. And uh, I certainly want to uh, expound on a little bit more, learn a little bit more about this. Also, there's another really great book that I stumbled upon written by Brian D. McKnight, which was copyrighted 2006. This was the University Press of Kentucky. And this was called contested borderland the civil war in appalachian kentucky and virginia so you know what happened there along the border what happened in those mountain coves um there's there's so much history and so much strife um i'm going to read this one thing this was i think this is from the introduction i don't have any rights to any of this so i want you guys to go check this book out but what i'm reading on this this particular page Uh, Recalling her family's role in the Civil War, Patsy Boggs remembered that one day a Yankee deserter named uh, Benny came to grandpa's. Hiding from both federal and Confederate forces, the soldier found an isolated Dickinson County, Virginia community off the main roads. Though he had been hanging around the neighborhood, Boggs' grandfather suspected the soldier had ulterior motives. Despite the fact that Benny had been friendly and probably dependent on the handouts of the citizens for his survival, The patriarch filled the man would kill the family. One day, the old man invited Benny into the house. Now, I'm not going to read the rest, but that is just an example of some of these stories that you'll read. Now, I notice when you go to fairs and festivals, when you see people with books out, always go by uh, those tables and check out those books, especially if you're a history fanatic, because you will find some amateur writers uh, who do some independent writers who do some really great research on their local communities. Give those, uh, give those books a chance, give that research a chance, see what you think. Um, there's a, there's a lot of good information out there that just does not fall into the hands to be mass produced and, uh, and disseminated properly um, on the internet. And these people put an incredible amount of research and work into what they do. But here's another page I found uh, on civil war books and authors, the five books on the civil war in Southern Appalachia. That's that, of course, this they deemed worth reading. The first one, ironically, on the book was, or on the list was Civil War in Appalachia, collected essays. Uh, the second was Clash of Loyalties, a border county in the Civil War. And that's uh, by John Schaefer in 2003. Uh, Contested Borderland was the third one. So the like, two that I found actually showed up on this, this list. And again, that was by Brian D. McKnight. Um, Yeah, it says here, McKnight's book provides an in-depth perspective on the back-and-forth fighting over the strategically important mountain gaps separating southeast Kentucky and southwest Virginia, emphasizing the resources targeted by both sides and the suffering of civilians caught in the middle. So the study also demonstrates the plastic nature of the local population's loyalties, their allegiance shifts, an essential coping mechanism, to off and on occupation by both sides. Okay, that's interesting. Um, The fourth one is a book called The Heart of Confederate Appalachia, Western North Carolina and the Civil War. And that's by John C. Ensco and Gordon B. McKinney. And that came out in 2000. And the fifth one on the book, uh, on the list, is called A Separate Civil War, Communities in Conflict in the Mountain South by Jonathan Dean Saris. And this takes a closer look at two North Georgia counties straddling the Blue Ridge. As other scholars have discovered, Sears finds that localism very often supersedes ideological concerns and national or even state loyalties for many citizens living in more isolated areas of the Confederacy. The Inner War was a civil war for a great many Fannin and Lumpkin County Georgians. Anyway, really interesting books. Um, I'm certainly going to Take take part in a couple of those, but I encourage you to do the same, especially if you're a you know fan of local history, and want to share that. If you're want to share that with your kids, your grandkids, uh, or if or if you're a younger person listening to this show, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, share it with your parents or grandparents. There's some great information out there, and so much more interesting things being written these days than than maybe in some years past because you know the the uh, true heartfelt impacts in Appalachia. Of the Civil War, I guess, have been glossed over because of those very same reasons that I mentioned prior. So if you check one of those books out, feel free and drop us an email and let us know what you think or, or leave a comment in the section uh, uh, of the podcast. Uh, make sure also that wherever you do listen to your favorite podcast, you subscribe to our podcast and uh, let your friends know about it. This We don't really do any advertising of the Appalachian Shine but it's word of mouth, and hopefully you'll share this with friends and family. Uh, If you want to look us up, it's appalachianshine.podbean.com, and uh, click on an episode that you like, share it on your Facebook or uh, Instagram page, share it with folks, and help us get the word out about what our mission is, and about why it's so important that we promote our history, our culture, our arts, and the opportunities economically and touristically that that are present here, and these gorgeous, amazing mountains that we call home. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of Appalachian Shine. We'll be back soon with some more fun information, hopefully a few guests here before the end of the year. And uh, tune in next time. Until then, we'll see you on down the road.